non-gluten breads, and we've gone through this concept of uh, what it what it exactly it is. We've talked a little bit about patbikisnin that we had last uh, last time, but dealing with an excursus on something which is much more of a delicacy, uh, made with honey and those kind of things. We've talked about the fact that she, as far as she's concerned, two things happen. One is the fiyata suda that the suda itself is a made meal, it's not a snack or anything like that, and therefore deserves to uh, to have Brikata Mazon. And also that her concept is that in normal cases we would do Mine Mizonot, but that it is possible to do Hamotzi for that particular uh, level of a major suda. What's left as such is once you do Motzi, do you have to do Nitilakyadayim? Because normally, as you well know, you do Nitilakyadayim, which leads into Birkata Motzi. Um, and that's kind of the, the thing that's left out there from her particular concept of looking at this as a, as a total framework. So we're on page 11. All right, everybody have? A couple extra. Everybody has? Very good. All right, so what we're dealing with now is this concept of if indeed she suggests that you can do Birkata Motsi, what does that mean in terms of Niti Lakyadayim? With bread, obviously, as you know, it doesn't matter how much of a, a bread you eat, olives bulk as such, you do Niti Lakyadayim first. We do it because of the concepts of symbolic of purity and impurity, especially when it comes to, to bread. But we don't do nitilakyadam for anything else beyond bread. And the only other time is you don't need you to do any kind of washing the hands as Pesach, but you don't do a bracha. So it's not really nitilakyadam. Okay, and there it has to do with a remnant of, of making sure that your hands are pure before you eat anything uh, that may have some liquids attached to it. But it's not anything related to Nitilakyadayim with the bracha or anything that goes with that. Alright, so that's what's left over for her. She's going to look at this entire spectrum of what does it mean to, uh, to have this as a major meal, to recite Brikata Motsi. Do you also do Nitilakyadayim in that realm? Okay? Marcy, we'll start with you and we'll kind of go paragraph by paragraph as we go along. It has been the practice that a person eating in a main meal with bread performs nitilakyadayim, ritual washing of the hands before eating. The question arises, would a person eating a main meal, according to the definition of a main meal advocated in this chuva, also perform nitilakyadayim? Okay, now the main meal then is somebody's having non-gluten or patpikisnin, not totally one of the wheat th- wheats or oats, barley, and therefore a sense that normally you would not do niti lakyadayim, but she has suggested that since it's a main meal, it's not a snack, you're not grazing, therefore is the question of do you do niti lakyadayim based on her concept of a main meal uh, in this particular case. Okay? Either one, but whatever you want. I'll let you guys make some decisions. The answer is no. And the reason has to do with the link of hand washing to ritual impurity. The sages ordain that the hands must be rinsed when one wants to eat bread. As we learn in Haggah 18b, the hands are to be rinsed for unconsecrated food, the tithe and taramah. It is explained in the Gemara that this applies to eating 
concentrated food and to touch and carry on because hands can cause impurity at two removes, while tara ma can cause impurity at three removes. And the sages require hand washing from eating unconsecrated food in order to acquire the habit of washing the tara ma, as holding 106a. If they do not habituate themselves to wash their hands before eating unconsecrated food, they will come to follow the habit of not washing their hands with tara ma. They were not stringent in requiring him to touch an unconsecrated food because it seemed sufficient to acquire the habit when eating unconsecrated food and not necessary when touching unconsecrated food. Okay, so let's uh, try to understand this. The difference is between Devarim Shabbat and Chulin. Chulin are those things that have no Kedushat, any kind of sanctity attached to them whatsoever. Anytime you're dealing with things that relate to what, we, what they call here consecrated in English, or things that related to Kedushah, you have the responsibility of making sure that your hands are pure. So, Truma was only eaten by the Kohen, and the Kohen had to make sure that, that, that everything he had in, on his body as such was pure. The tithes were eaten by the Levi'im. Normally, these kinds of things were consecrated, meaning you made them Kodesh. In the same way as if you had an animal and you made it Kodesh and was given to the temple, these were part of your produce. Some was given to the Kohen, some was given to the Levi. A Levi would receive obviously a tenth, a tithe. How much does anybody know what Trumai is? How much? No, much smaller. Between roughly two, between one fortieth and one sixtieth. One fiftieth was considered to be the average, if you gave one fortieth or one sixtieth, you were either considered to be, you know, miserly or over. Okay, but and and the the levy had to give to the kohen as well. Okay, out of what's known as trumat maaser, so he out of his maaser, out of his tithe, he also had to give to the kohen. That's again how the kohen received his food. His whole family received the food. He didn't own land. He didn't work. He had to be ready to serve in the temple, etc., etc. The Levi also didn't own land. We're going to read soon about the fact that they, owned, they lived in walled cities, but not agricultural areas. So it was the responsibility of the Israelites, who were obviously the predominant group, to be able to take care of them. Anything that goes in realms of the attachment to the central sanctuary, either given there or avowed to it, which we're actually going to talk about in this week's Parsha, or consecrated to the people who are going to work with it, is considered Dvarim Shepikdusha. It is, you no longer own it. The temple and its precincts and the people who work within it do. So, for instance, if you gave an animal a, a, a Bechor that you had to sacrifice, and it had to go to the temple, you don't own it anymore. It belongs to the temple. Therefore, you have to treat it a certain kind of way. You can't just shaft it. Okay? If it has a blemish, you have to replace it. All kinds of laws that the Talmud goes through. If you take valuation upon yourself, we're going to read about this in this week's Torah portion, I'll let you talk about it, you would be worth a certain amount of money. That money went to the temple. That was considered Kiddushah. You couldn't touch that. It had to be put aside. You had to take it to the temple precincts. If you had gave what's known as a Maser Sheni, if you had to gave six, there were six years in between the sabbaticals, as you know, and 
two out of the six was Maser Sheni, which meant that you had to take the produce and go up to Jerusalem and eat it there. Well, if you lived far away, you weren't going to be able to take the produce up there. What you would do is you would sell it, you'd add a fifth, and then you would take all that money up to Jerusalem, you would buy produce in Jerusalem, and then you would eat it in Jerusalem. It guaranteed the economy of Jerusalem, it guaranteed the central sanctuary of Jerusalem, it guaranteed the centrality of Jerusalem. But that is considered already holy stuff. It's not kulin. It doesn't belong to you any longer once it's given to the temple. Okay? And if you, for instance, say, I'm going to give this animal to the temple as a thanksgiving for whatever, that is no longer your possession. And once something happens to it, there's a question of what we have what's known as whole Talmud section on Tmurah. Can you exchange it? Do you have to redeem it? Do you have to add a penalty for it? All of the above. That's tied into this. So when you eat consecrated food, your hands had to be clean. Now, remember, we talked about too about table fellowship. The Pharisees believed that you always had to live, eat impurity, in impurity, not impurity, impurity, and therefore washing your hands became part of getting ready for the meal. Okay, the Pharisees believed that really mamlechet kohanim v'goy kadosh, the kingdom of priests and a holy nation, was to be taken literally. And therefore, everything we were to eat was done in, in purity. And who didn't take care of purity? The Am Haaretz. Remember our studies a couple of few months ago. You couldn't trust an Am Haaretz because he didn't eat impurity. It wasn't part of the table fellowship. And therefore was seen as a person of the field, an ignoramus, someone who wasn't careful about these kinds of things. And if you weren't careful about these kinds of things, you didn't eat his food. You didn't have him at your table, all those kind of things. That's tied into here. So what the Aruch HaShulchan, which is what we said about 20, beginning of the 20th century halachic um, compendium says, the hands are relating to Chagigah, the hands are to be rinsed for unconsecrated food, the tithe and the truma. Unconsecrated tum, lechol lechem, notlim liadaim lechulin, not already even for things that were given to the temple because the Pharisees believed that you had to do that. Lemaaser, obviously for tithing and truma. The guy which was given obviously to the Kohen had to eat. Why? Because if you touch some, if you were impure or the food was not done properly, there was the, the possibility of transference of that purity to something else if it was involved with some sort of liquid. And therefore, you wanted to make sure that when you were sitting at the table, this isn't hygienic, remember? This is this esoteric. It, de it deals with hygiene, obviously, but it's an esoteric thing of purity and impure impurity. You wanted to be able to eat in a high, what we'll call a higher status of holiness. Because the Pharisees believed you had to live that way all the time. And the Talmud is a Pharisaic book, compendium, and that's the way it works. So, Therefore, the sages required hand-washing when eating unconsecrated food, when you ate cooling, so that you would be prepared that if you're going to eat truma, your hands would definitely be washed. Because if you said, well, normally I don't do it, oh, I forgot this time, and this time the Kohen had truma, or I gave it away, etc. So what this is, is what the gezerah, if you will. It's making the fence even wider. 
you made sure that you washed your hands at all times so that when the time came that you really had to wash your hands you didn't you didn't forget to do it everybody get it up to a point <laughs> it's what it's it's part of okay it's part of the fair pharisaic doctrines it's part of table fellowship it's part of the sense of living in purity as much as possible and anything that for sure is given to the temple or those who work in the temple has to be done in purity period now again this is if you live in impurity it's not a punishment you could always become pure okay as you recall from Tazria a woman goes into impurity when she gives birth she then can become pure after a period of time going to the mikvah a woman becomes impure after a menstrual period she can become pure again by going to the mikvah a person becomes impure by coming, having contact with a dead body can become pure again after a period of waiting the, the, the ashes of the red heifer sprinkled upon him and going to the mikvah a, a man even who has what's known as carry a, a nocturnal emission would be impure he'd have to go to the mikvah he just wouldn't have to wait he could do it the next day all of that was to heighten the sanctity of the temple and its precincts and the Pharisees believed that you had to live that way who believed even more? the Dead Sea Scrolls people the Dead Sea sects whether the Essenes or not and their differences of opinions of whether the, the Essenes really wrote them or not but let me finish right, so, okay? I saw the hands because um, once I stop my train of thought I'm, I'm lost sorry so what the Essenes believed that everything was purity there were groups who lived in total sense of isolation wouldn't touch anything all of those things that relate and so there were various gradations because if you lived in, pu in, in purity the more you lived in purity it was believed ultimately you were more divine-like more spiritual closer to God and that's no different today than people who live in, in spiritual senses they'll dress a certain kind of way they'll act a certain kind of way they'll, they'll live in a certain kind of fashion we, this is the Pharisees and then and we have remnants of what they did by no matter what we there is no consecrated food today because there is no temple and, the, and we don't give food to the Kohen and Levi but to remember that to remember that we continue to do before having bread or as she's now interpreting it a main meal that's the if you will the hook that's here it's not simply bread, but having a main meal. Yes? Walking out of the cemetery, you mean the person has to go to mikvah? There is no such a thing. You We're walk, all impure. You wash your hands, you wash your hands symbolically, as you know, when you come back from, from, from either the cemetery, especially after going there for a funeral. It's all symbolic. Everybody is impure until we get the ashes of the red heifer back. There are people working on that. I'm not so sure I want them to find it, but that's a different story. Okay? But everybody's impure. But symbolically, we still keep washing your hands as fish when you walk from the cemetery because it's just part of who, you know, it's just mean how it gets said. No, you don't say a bracha. Only in the tilat yadayim leading to the food. No, we always understand washing as being a purification rite. But was there any uh, any time when uh, illness took a, a, a step in that, or that was something that? Well, the mitzorah is the closest as you get to it. Okay, I mean, whatever mitzorah, leprosy, or whatever, they had to be. You know, once 
once he was examined or she examined by the Kohen and they were considered to be that the blemish was going to be leaving it wasn't a permanent blemish and they can go back they had to go through a purification which included mikvah okay? but it wasn't cons- that's, that's what the Torah tells us we don't have other cases if you break an arm or if you have heart attack or you have they, they didn't in, any, in many ways be able to identify illness illness was seen as a divine punishment as we see from, from Mitzorah and therefore was tied in to a sense of purity and, and, and spiritual st- status etc illness qua illness you know what did they do to, in order to the illnesses they drew blood like he's dumb yes. there were blood letters yes. leeches and those I mean leeches. you know we, we don't have much in, in Jewish sources I mean you have a little bit in Maimonides but you have a little bit in the Talmud you have Egyptian sources dealing with bloodletting and those kind of things Jews did it too but they, there was no medical science as we now know it and it, it wouldn't exist either now again people today when you look at the mikvah there are people who go to the mikvah for pure, not for purification but for spiritual reasons okay there are people who go you know after being saved from a certain thing there are people who go for you know Arab Yom Kippur and all those all you know th- those kind of things uh, etc all symbolic all symbolic Morgan. I'm not sure if I'm just being dull the question arises would this person who eats the main meal also perform Nitilaya time? The answer is no. Right now. That's the, the, that's not, we haven't finished her whole section. Okay? <laughs> no, why? Right, right, right. So why, why does she say no so far? Because there isn't bread attached to it. That's all. Okay? Okay? She does say with a main meal you should do mozi. She does say with a main meal you do Gurikat Kamazon. Therefore, the last part of that trio, if you will, which will take your Friday night, is need to like that. So far, at least from this source, you haven't finished this whole excursus here. She says, I don't have the nudity like a dime because of this, this concept. We better turn the page. <laughs> I, I know you can't wait. I, I know, Fran, you know, patience, 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 you know. All right, anybody else? Okay, page 12. Jane, I have an excellent if you want. You want to pass it down, please? <laughs> Concerning. All right, top of page 12. Work. Ritual washing was required so as to acquire the habit of washing before touching Truma. Consecrated food meant for the priests and their household to consume when the Jerusalem temple was standing. Ritual washing was limited to those eating bread and was not extended to touching any other unconsecrated food product. There was no reason to extend the practice prompted by hand impurity to other foods beyond bread made from the five species of grain when Truma no longer... Okay, Frank, you feel better now? So, what has she done? She's broken up the trio. You don't need niti like yadayim. You can do boremi zonot, but you can also do motzi because it's the main meal. And because it's the main meal, you can do berkat hamazon. Okay? Yes, ma'am. So you, me, you can do motzi even if you don't have bread. She has said because it's the main meal. Let's do the psaka, which is the law. But that's her chop, if you will. All right, Joel. Okay. The psak means this is the this is her conclusion. This is her, the the halakha. 
If a person eats a meal that satiates so that it constitutes a main meal satisfying a major part of that person's nutritional needs, without eating bread made from the traditional five species of grain, that person should recite your zone after the meal. Okay, so that's the first section. You say Birkatamazon because it's a main meal because Achalta Visavata Uverachta Savata. You satiate it, this isn't a snack. Whether you've eaten bread or not, you need Birkatamazon. That's the normal bracha, okay? We've had the before. Rice is mazonot. Potato is bare piadama. Now, go. Somebody wish to follow this ruling. Since the bracha that was the excursus we read you know the dainty things and, and those kind of things that relate to uh, relate uh, that are made with that way when used as a foundation component of a main meal is a uh, that's the new part okay that patbekisnin even though it's not made by wheat flour etc you can still do hamotzi lechemina arts so to the bracha for breads loaves and raised dough products made from gluten-free flour as a foundational component of the main meal. Kovea Suda. Kovea means the main meal. That's the real new one. Okay? Normally you do more I'm saying because it's a main meal, even though it's non-gluten, you can do bore pre hamotzi lechem A person eating a main meal without bread made Clearly, they can be counted, but they can also be served as the main main leader. And finally, a person eating a main meal without bread made from traditional five species of grain does not have to observe Okay. All right. So she's carried us through. Pam's a, a great author. She's carried us through very logically. All this way, okay? Okay, so number one, a main meal, Birkat Amazon. Plessing beforehand, you can do Borei Mazonot, Borei but you can also do Hamotzi. The person who's, eat, who's, not, who's eaten gluten free can even lead Birkat Amazon, and you don't do Niti like to die. Yeah? So it is not the custom for most of us here, as far as I know, but there is a custom in certain groups to do Mayim Achronim? Mayim I have no idea what you would say about Mayim Achronim. So there's no bracha for that? There's no bracha. But it's almost the echo of the Tibat Jadayim before the It has to do with salt on your hands. That's all it has to do with. Um, I think I missed the logic. Why don't we wash our hands? Because it's not bread. Oh, only Basically because it's not bread and that's what it's tied into. You can do the other... Mm-hmm. You never do a Vermoimarizonot or, you know. You can do mozi, but it's not, because it's not bread, you don't really do it. Yeah, design. So, the next page is the excursus we had done before. Okay. And, right. 
Exactly. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. So you should bring your own Page 14, 15, 16, and 17. She brought you all the sources. We've done the sources, so I don't really see a need to do them again, but it was really, it's a nice way as a, as a study session for you to review and to be able to go through things. We've done these the sources as, as part of the section. Normally in a Chuvai you don't have to do this, um, but I think she, she's a teacher at heart, so I think that's why she did it. So let's turn to the last page. Okay, the set, not, not on the last last page, but the last um, two. There's last two pages. Okay. There is no page. There is. It says the concurrent. Uh, concurrent. So, in the law committee, in the law committee, you can disagree. You can do two things. If you agree, you can write a paper in agreement. It will be published eventually and being part of the archives of the law committee. You can disagree and also write a paper, which is also part of it. Officially in the, in the quote-unquote old days, before all this stuff was put on the web, if you asked for tshuva, if a rabbi asked for tshuva, he would be sent, or she, mostly he did but since that time, but she in the early years too, would be sent both the majority and even the minority papers, so because the Mara de Atra, the rabbi of the place still makes that decision. Most people do not necessarily write if they disagree a paper. Here, two of the people who dissented, Rabbis Hammer and Reisner, decided that they were going to respond to Rabbi Barmash's paper. They, as you can see, a concurrence in concept, a dissent in detail. They're going to agree in general but they're going to disagree on a certain part of the detail and that's why this is appended here as part of it. Her, her, if you, her paper is, was accepted, ten in favor and five against, four abstaining. These were two of the people who voted against and they wanted to corroborate their opinion by writing a paper. That's not normally done but it, it can be done as part of the legal the list system. What is the purpose of this abstention in the I abstain a number of times too. Sometimes the abstention may be, you haven't proved your point to me, but I get it, and I don't really want to vote against. Sometimes it may be to the point of, I understand all your reasoning, but you didn't take it far enough. You don't know exactly. Um, when you're at the law committee and you vote, you don't have to say, and I voted. Be Normally in the discussion, you'll somebody wants to be verbal about it, they'll say, I voted, I'm going to vote this way because of X but there's no substantiation needed if you just vote. So sometimes the abstention may be, I just don't think you're right, but I get it. I don't want to write vote against it. Or sometimes maybe you not haven't proved it. Um, I remember one vote where I said to somebody, unless you remove X, there was a statement there that I thought was just totally uncalled for, I'm going to abstain. I agree with you, but I'm going to abstain based on those kind of, this kind of thing. Um, and, and so it's really dependent. Uh, an abstention is not necessarily a no vote, but it's definitely not taken as a yes vote. Yeah, Ron. So you never for political or... Uh... Everything's political. I mean, there is no saying that there's no decisions that are not political in and of its realm. Anybody thinks they're dealing in pure, you know, pristine stuff. But y you could. I mean, clearly I was involved in the homosexuality debate and there were those kind of things. Some of that can be considered political, no matter what you thought halakhically, etc. There's sometimes that you, you abstain because you just can't go that far. But I, I'm willing to, to listen to you on those things. And sometimes you abstain by saying, 
There's no way you can convince me, but I really don't want to vote against this thing. It really depends. Can these things then become the law? Yeah. Yeah. The law, again, meaning that you have the opportunity of following it if you if the rabbi of the place, or in this case, it's, 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 you know, if, if, we had, if we had an entire meal here, okay, an entire meal and we didn't serve bread, do we do Birkat Amazon or not? We had an entire meal here of gluten-free. Okay, individually, people can do as they so wish. As I said to you, when Jerry Silverman was at my my house, you know, we got up to wash. Said, "Well, I'm not going to wash because I'm not going to do motzi." Okay. So, and I said, "I have a paper I want to send you." So, no, no. So, which was he appreciated that, yeah. and I did. I sent it to him. We haven't talked since. So uh, deliberately. He could he right it, what she says that he because it was right a cooked of course it was a main meal you know uh, he could have he, he could have said hamotzi if he so wished and he could have led Rikad he, he, he clearly could be part of it right did he save Rikad I believe so I don't you know wasn't paying that much I believe so okay. So it does. It you know again, it does matter to people. Having noticed that for those who are eating gluten free, using alternative non-gluten bread, Karen Halacha seemed to propose that they never trigger the Kadamazon. And Rabbi Pamela Barmesh asked, does it does it make sense for for the meant for main meal? To be omitted so often. Indeed, it does not. Meaning, Rekhadamazon is something that should be said. Okay. She proposed, therefore, to rule with the minority position of Rabbi Akiva, which uh, she, she defines the main meal, uh, she defines the main meal. Uh, providing a major part of a person's nutritional needs and since her ruling implicates whether a should be recited before the meal when the result of the meal has not yet been ascertained. In other words, you don't know if you're going to be filled when you get it. Who knows? Maybe they're just going to give you a force spice and that's it. What do you know that you're going to get when you're sitting down to somebody saying, oh, we invited for, for, oh, our custom is that we just have bread and then dessert. You know, I mean, you know I mean, how do you know it would say? So, I start with dessert. Yeah. Alan? Alan? The conclusion runs against several lines of traditional halakha in this area. As Rabbi Barmash concedes, the law has not been like Rabbi Akiva, more to the point, halakha endeavors to reduce areas of personal consideration in favor of rules that can be applied across the board. Indeed, in the matter of determining <coughs> if a meal is a main meal, kavat, kaviyat suda, the normative halacha is careful to define it in terms of the amount eaten 
and determines that amount of what most people would consider sufficient, and specifically not either. People have different ways of satiating. You know, I mean, what are you going to say? Uh, uh, well, I'm finished, you know, I, I have a little bit and I'm done, and Thorson says, a little, that's a meal. You know, how are you going to define that? So the, the, tradi- the tradition then became that everybody had it on the basis of an olive sprite, you know, whatever the volume is, so that everybody knew exactly what that meant and not it's up to the individual to decide what that is. Dina? Thus, her solution does not appear optimal, and a tighter ruling that required Birkata Mazon for other breads that function like breads of the five grains but not for breadless meals seems to be required. Are there grounds for such a ruling? <laughs> the sages appear to tie Nitilakya Daim, Hamotzi, and Birkata Mazon into a seamless body. Right, okay, all the triad goes together for all of us. They stated clearly that the blessing Hamotzi is tied exclusively to the five major grains, as is Boremine Mazonot, when those grains are cooked or baked as cake or crackers. Don't forget, don't forget the brackets here, because they're just the, the citing the sources. In Rambam's formulation, wherever one says Hamotzi in the beginning, one concludes with Birkata Hamazon. Wherever one says Boreminei Mazonot in the beginning, one concludes with the one blessing and that's normally what we do, right? If you do motzi, berkat mazon. If you do the others, it's bracha chrona. Okay. Having, having given that generalization, however, he immediately had to <coughs> save rice for the blessing before eating rice is berei minei mazonot, whereas after it is berei nifashot. Okay, that's the small one. That's not the bracha chrona. In so ruling, the Gemara breaks the simple association of Borei Mine Mazonot with the five grains, and Beit Yosef explains that rice is called Mazon because it satisfies and provides nutrition. Now these are Sephardic Jews. Rice, therefore, is the stable of their meal. In fact, although both Rambam and Karo limit this exception to rice alone, many Rishonim would apply it to millet and other grains as well. Note carefully the comment by the Chafet Chaim, in truth, many Rishonim believe that the blessing over millet is Borei Minei Mazonot, like rice. This is the view of Rosh and Ra'avad. And the unchallenged statement of the author of the Shulchan Aruch, that this blessing applies beyond the five major grains only to rice, is solely the opinion of Rif, Rambam, and Rabbeinu Yehuda. One needs wonder why the author opted to rule against the Rosh and all, all the other Rishonim who hold by his... In other words, why did she say, when you do this thing, you say, you can't say Hamotzi, or you can say Rehem Rezanot, when this looks to be different? Perhaps they were not known to him, for he did not cite, for he did not cite them in Beit Yosef. Therefore, one who wishes to say Berei Mine Mazonot is not prohibited from doing so, in my humble opinion. Kach nireit laniyut dati, in my humble opinion, is the Hebrew passage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> know also that several Rishonim believe that this is also the case with regards to other grains which we know nourish and sustain like rice and millet that being said one who says shahakol on millet and all of these as Perkaro's ruling certainly has upon what to rely my emphasis in rice and possible, possibly other grains 
we find a foodstuff wherein the opening blessing does not adequately determine the closing blessing. In other words, sometimes it's sometimes it's Shakul, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have to say either Rachachrona or Borene Fashot. So that's the key. Remember what she said? Basically, if you're going to do Brikar Mazon, then maybe you should also do Motsi. That's where you can see where they're getting to. Larry? A similar case is found as well in uh, Orachayim. Orachayim uh, 208.9, where a bread stuff that has as its opening blessing Hamotzi, nevertheless does not then require Birkat Hamazon. Uh, we stand alerted to the possibility that a different standard might apply to Birkat Hamazon than the standard requiring Hamotzi. That the requirement of hamotzi is tied to eating of the five grains, even a small amount, whereas the standard for Bikhanamazon has to do with eating a main meal. Okay, so maybe the two don't rely on one another. You motzi have a certain bread, but Bikhanamazon is the savata, the satiating. And from the case of Patzabab uh, Kisnin, which we talked about. Which Rabbi Barnabash highlights, we learn further that the distinction between sitting for a meal and snacking has halakhic grounding as well. So now, our ruling based on this, Merle? Our, go ahead. our ruling, our solution to the problem that Rabbi Barnabash rightly posed that those eating gluten free bread, whether it's a matter of medical necessity or choice, should not be forever free of. Ah, okay. That, your they should say. Should be that the eating of a bread, whatever its source, that is specifically intended to be a grain bread substitute, should be recognized as constituting fiatsuda, a main meal, and required your katamazon. Whereas breadless meals do not. Do not, okay? Meaning anything that's like bread or like a bread. It needs birkata mazon. That's what they're really saying. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but unlike Pavaba Abikisnin, which has a major grain at its heart, the blessing for such a gluten-free bread should not revert to... Ah, okay, that's the difference. Which is inappropriate for such a product, but remain remain in the zonot for bread made of other grains, rice, millet, aramefta, and either shako or grapea dama eats on breads made of other plants, potatoes or almonds, depending on your stance with regard to flour and subsequent baked goods. <laughs> Such gluten-free bread would require Nutilaki. Would require, okay. Wow. Would require. And your Karamazan at the end of the meal will retain its own... So what are they saying? Nitilakya daim, yes. Hamotzi, no. Bekaramazon, yes. Now look, just read the, the note number four on the bottom. You, you or Fran, I don't care. It recognizes its origin in purity rituals and as such applied to fruits as well as bread when they were true Okay, if there were times when you washed your hands, even there wasn't bread in ancient times because we said this was consecrated food. The rabbis applied Nitilatia dime to their meals even in the essence of Truma and always began the meal with bread. Thus, did Nitilatia dime come to be associated with Hamotzi? Whereas it is better associated with the Kiyatsi. Uh-huh. That's okay. So, look at the triad. Nitilat for them. Mazon, yes. Birkata Motsi, no. Nitilat Yadayim, yes. yes. So it's based on the satiation of the... Right, right. The Savata, which is the right, which comes to the Torah already. But those who are gluten-free 
and don't have bread would have to say the other. Uh, no, they said if it's a main meal, they should do Birkat Amazon. No, I know. Yeah. The blessing before they should not do Motsi. Either either Boremir is on order or Shakol, depending on what they're eating. But they would have, supposedly, they should do Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. You have to say a blessing beforehand. Oh, absolutely. But it's not Motsi. But that's the difference between the descent and Right. Okay, so if you were to take the two opinions, Berkatamazon, for both. Nitilak Yadayim, disagreement. Hamotzi, disagreement. So is Marta Atra here? What's our, we go with Rabbi? Ooh, good question. <laughs> so at, at this, I would, the, the, look, the answer I would suggest to people, if, some, if Jerry Silverman's a map table, Berkatamazon, absolutely. You have your choice of either one of these opinions in that realm. Um, based on you know whether you want to do motzi or not, um, and whether you want to do nitilat your die or not. Now, officially, if you look at the vote, the way it comes down is ten in favor, five against, and four abstaining. The, a six-person vote is considered to be a substantial opinion, or to be a halakhic opinion. Less than that is not. So this is really a minority opinion, the two of them, which is probably why they wrote it. And therefore, Ron, to go back to your concept, or Joel, abstaining becomes important here because it doesn't let them get to the six-vote minimum, if you will. So one could say legitimately, follow Rabbi Barmash, because that's the what we call the majority, although we don't call that, but the legitimate opinion. But there's at least an opinion, minority opinion, as Satchwit says, you wouldn't have to do this. It seems to the... the Right, to the poverty of my mind. Separate question. Can one just be mechabed on someone else, or mechabedet on someone else doing motzi without having consumed? What do you mean by mechabedet? Like if you want to say Birkamazot at the end, but you don't want to wash or do... You can always be part, yeah, you can be part of the Birkamazot. You can't lead it. Right. Okay, can we, we've seen as long as the butler walk between places could be part of, of this, okay, to be part of the zimun. Yeah, normally what happens in those cases, you let them, they, they usually, somebody usually finishes, hazanet akol, you say amen, and then you can go back eating or whatever you need to do. You still would have to say bracha for now. Right. Okay, you might have to say something else too. Um, I, just a thought, I could see it being socially pro- problematic if um, when pe- some people are not eating gluten-free and everyone gets up to wash if it's a general, like a Shabbos meal, and they sit and don't wash. I mean, it seems to me... No, I had it at my table. You said, I'm not going to eat bread, so I'm not going to wash. So, I, so I get it, you know. Send you paper. Right. <laughs> so, what'd you say? Yeah, no, so it's the same thing. So, so look, not, you know, even here, our language is normal. If you wish to wash, the tables are open, right? Not everybody washes. Some people, you know, etc. So my, my response is, depending how big a group it is, you know, if, 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 if there are people who go to the table and immediately willing to eat challah, and there are other people who you know, maybe on a diet and don't want to eat challah, or, you know, just don't want to have bread, or whatever the case may be. Is it, so the response is they have to do at least Birkat do at least a bracha afterwards. They can do Birkat So if somebody's going to, you know, everybody gets up the table once it's, one person sits there, you know, you can decide as long as, you know, at our table, if it's not eating us, we say, okay, you know. 
Depends how you want to deal with it. You know. You, I, I can guarantee at your table and, and everybody else's table, there was always people who said, "Oh, I don't wash. It's not my thing." You know, <laughs> right? Right. I washed already. Well, that's right. 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 You know, it's not so. That's the story. So uh, we still have a little bit of time. What I did as well, because um, I wanted to find a different, a uh, little bit of a different opinion. There may not be quite enough, so at least the couples can share. We'll see how, how far this goes around. Classes keeps getting bigger all the time. It's a pleasure. Is I found something why gluten-free matzah isn't kosher for seders. So here's one more. Sandy, here's one more. You can pass it down, please. It's amazing thing how you can find things today. Are we missing any? Everybody had one to look on at least. I'll bring. I'll bring that's all I have right now. So. All right. That's all. Uh, uh, what? No, that's it. That's it. That's it. What? No, no. That's it. Um, so, uh, if they at least have a chance to look on, if we don't finish it, I'll, I'll bring a couple extra next week. Okay? So, um, I found this, and basically it's going to deal with, with there are different ways. Furtin is gluten free. They really shouldn't be eating matzah. Is that good enough? What do they do at a Seder? Where it's a mitzvah. We're not dealing with bread. You're not going to eat bread on a, even on a Friday night. It's not a mitzvah. What do you do under these cases? Okay, Jane, you want to start reading? Eating masa on Passover is a mitzvah, but it's not easy for everyone. There's one more. Anybody? Anybody? You didn't really want to know what's in it. They didn't want to know what's in it. The gluten-free set. I love that. This is written in 2012, as you can see. Okay, uh-huh. Okay. According to the Orthodox Union, an authority on certifying kosher food reads readily because one can only perform the mitzvah of eating matzah at the Seder with a matzah that is made of one of those same varieties of grain, barley, wheat, rye, oats, and spelt. Eating matzah using any other flours that are gluten-free would not would still not enable one to fulfill the mitzvah. Gluten is found in wheat, rye, and barley. Mm-hmm. So if you're over spelt, that's the whole thing. 
documentary generation three says GFSCO certification is major for a major a matzo brand. She tried to put a matzo after seeing it at Whole Foods and she proves it is a solid crack and a nice feel. It tastes good with things on it. We'll do a tasting test, yes. Karen? But Rabbi Menachem Ganach, rabbinic administrator and CEO of the OU, says that the gluten-free products made with tapioca aren't really matzah. That's what we've been basically dealing with in terms of the grains, right? Since the unleavened bread emblematic of Passover has to be made from one of the five grains, Presumably, Pam Barmash would disagree. There are two alternatives that can fulfill the matzah mitzvah in the eyes of the OU. Spelt matzah, which has a lower gluten content. But this presumably still has some, I gather. But that contradicts what it just said up in that paragraph. Can be substituted for regular matzah, as can oat matzah. Yes. Friend, you're when you make the first bracha at the Seder. He says yes. He says he seems to say yes. Okay? He seems to say yes. Okay? Cohen says that neither of those options is ideal. Even though it has lower gluten Here's the problem, right? It's a huge problem. Spelt is still a no no for people with celiac disease because it's related to wheat. And while oats by themselves can be fine for celiacs, in practice, oats are easily cross-contaminated with wheat during the manufacturing process. Hypothetically, the matzo maker was buying certified gluten-free oats at either gluten-free manufacturing facility or testing a final product. If from start to finish, you had a gluten-free environment, Sounds like peanuts and everything already, doesn't it? But I don't know if people who are making the oat matzah are using certified oats. Ganak allowed that different people have different sensitivities. And while unleavened bread made from anything other than the five grains wouldn't qualify as a mitzvah, celiacs and others with gluten sensitivities need not make themselves sick by eating a logically ordained matzah. If someone can't eat the matzah and it's harmful to them, they're not obligated to, he concluded. It really depends on what the condition is and how serious... You obviously don't have to put yourself into medical danger. Cohn is hardly deterred. I have a very positive attitude as a celiac, she explained. I've learned that participation is always more important than whether I can eat something. So for me, participating and being at the Seder is what's important. This year, Cohn will stick with the Yehuda matzah and let another person at her Seder make the mitzvah with ordinary matzah. <laughs> Someone will break the matzah, she explained. No big deal. Mm -hmm. Matzah and matzah. 
aside. Recent years have seen an increasing range of gluten-free products for Passover, serving people with gluten intolerance. intolerance and allergies, as well as one out of every wow. 133 Americans are uh, afflicted with afflicted with celiac disease, a genetic autoimmune disorder that causes antibodies to attack the instant intestine when gluten enters the system, a condition that some suggest affects Jews disproportionately. The Manischewitz website has a health corner that lists the company's gluten-free kosher for Passover products, which include grape juice, apple butter, chocolate and vanilla cake mixes, and spiral-shaped noodles. Stripes, long the go-to for Passover products, with their pink wrap boxes of matzah, symbolizing the arrival of Passover many grocery stores, now offers gluten-free kosher coconut macaroons. Though they don't have the GFCO certification, they are made with sulfite-free coconut, invert sugar, sugar, potato starch, and egg whites, and contain eggs and nuts. That could be a problem. Also available in the Whole Foods Passover section are Lily's Bake Shop, gluten-free, lactose-free, kosher for Pesach, chocolate-dipped chocolate macaroons, which are almost chocolatey enough to make you forget about all the stuff that's not in them. It's like eating parva ch you know, chocolate, and you say, oh, it's not that bad. But you can't compare it to the real stuff, as they say. Thankfully, the traditional Passover meal is usually friendly ground for celiac. You're still doing a meal heavy on protein, fruits, and vegetables, Cohen explained. And given the prohibition on bread, on bread products during Passover, meat isn't prepared with flour the way it might otherwise be. At Cohen's family Seder, where four attendees have gluten restrictions, Intolerance, uh, um, no, they'll serve. Uh, they'll serve protein salad and potatoes, which are a gluten intolerant person's best friend. Potato starch is gluten free, rice is another gluten free gem, which is helpful for Sephardic Jews who typically don't refrain from eating kidneyot, which include rice beans, and lentils. So what, what, right, this is obviously written before the Keatonyot issue, and in the Keatonyot issue they specifically say one of the reasons we're doing this is because of gluten-free and celiacs, so that they have at least the permission to be able to celebrate Pesach. What is the relationship of the Basarti to the OU? None. None. Are they the last word? OU? No, is the OU the last word? The answer is not necessarily. There's the Kafke. There, you know, there's a CRC. They don't. If if you look at the uh, kosher guides for Pesach put up by the OU and the CRC, they are very similar, but they don't always agree. So even in the Orthodox world, there are differences. There's 400, 500 different marks for kashrut today. Okay, but OU is the biggest, the most profitable, and the most well known. And, and most of them don't do Pesach. 
What? Most of the certification companies don't have to. Oh, right. Pass okay. There's only right. A few I didn't hear what you don't pass. I, didn't, yeah. <coughs> I wrote the last lines in because I didn't want to waste another whole sheet of paper. It was like three last lines. So. Colin says the holiday isn't such a challenge for her anymore. Thanks in part to Yuda Matza, which she calls a game changer. <laughs> Besides, everyone who observes Passover pays a great deal of attention to everything made during the holiday regarding ingredients and checking for certifications, for celiacs, that's business as usual. You're used to being in situations where you are paying attention uh, to what you are eating. To what you are eating. She said, and so I just thought this was an interesting one in terms of this thing as well. So we've concluded this. Um, we have a couple weeks left. I'm going to make a suggestion. You can decide whether you want to do this or not. Um, I don't want to start another parak. We'll talk further in terms of next year. Um, what I thought I would do, since we're in the realm of looking at Shuvot, if you like, I don't know how many people have read. I've written a number of Shuvot for the Law Committee. Um, the, the major one that I wrote would have to do with mezuzah. Um, and, and when you move from a place where you have to remove all the mezuzot and everything. If you'd like, I'd, I'd, I'd be prepared to study with you together. Okay? Yes, we're going to do it. We'll start next week if you want. How's that, Jane? All right. If that, if that's, is everybody all ready for do that? Then I'll study with you as, a, as the author, and you can, uh, I'll give you my thinking on that, too. Okay, thank you. If anybody doesn't want to...